welcome to Two Year Bible, a custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, Pastor of Resonate Church. I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey, everybody. And so we are uh, in the midst of the prophets, and we've got Hosea and Micah that you guys read this past week, as well as uh, some time in Mark. And so uh, we're going to pick right off, kind of right at the end of Hosea, and um, continue to hear um, God's charges or indictments against uh, Israel and Judah as well. Um, And and there's a lot of callback uh, to Jacob in in Mm -hmm. sort of the reading uh, that you had, at least at the beginning, um, reminding uh, the story of Jacob and and, uh, even his experience at Bethel, which for the Northern Kingdom should be uh, a bit of a trigger since Bethel is the location of one of those golden calves that that has been built uh, for them. Um, And Israel is struggling. They're, 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 they're very confident in their uh, achievements and they're sort of like, look at all the money we've got. We've earned this. And, and God's about to say, remind them, look, I was the one who does those things. And I'm going to need to take you back to the wilderness again to sort of teach you these lessons that, 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 that I'm your provision and I'm the one who um, provides for you. And so don't repeat the sins of Jacob who sometimes went after the things to earn it himself. Like be willing to, to trust in God as your provider and your provider of uh, just enough. Like that is the lesson of the wilderness. It's not uh, abundance. It's the idea that um, around each corner, God will provide um, enough to, to, to survive enough to, to even flourish without abundance per se. Yeah, I think we sometimes feel or often really feel entitled to things from God. We think that because we tithe regularly or we serve often or we pray the Lord's Prayer every day, uh, we shouldn't be subjected to the same struggles and sufferings that others are. But this really isn't true. God reminds Israel here that there are generations of faithless, um, but God has continued to remain faithful. They have not earned and are not entitled to his steadfast love and kindness, but he has given it freely because of his covenant that he made to his people. And and we, in the same way, receive his salvation because of his work and his faithfulness. So we are not entitled to anything because of our work we do or don't do, but it's all because of God's goodness and his free grace and gift to us. Yeah, absolutely. And so... Um, God continues the history lesson, kind of points out their worship of Baal gods, the human sacrifice that seemed to be happening and going on. It reminds them um, that that he was their God in their desert, that they didn't have needs even when they were walking around the desert. But yeah. yet in his provision, they've gotten spoiled and they've kind of turned away. So God's going to destroy them uh, and no king is going to save them. And God's even like, like I gave you a king and, and eat. And I was frustrated in giving you a king, and I'm frustrated in taking away kings, and and all all these things are, are going to be coming your way, and they're like pings in childbirth. They're they're signs that I'm coming, and you're not responding. You're you're not turning. You're not coming into the light. You're not coming to your father, but you're staying in darkness. And so, um, because you're you're not going to pay attention to this, like I'm not going to relent. And there's this east wind coming from the desert, which the Assyrians are in the north and and in the east. And so there's this east wind, basically the Assyrians who are going to come and destroy this land. Yeah, this just feels like a really heartbreaking section to read, like a a father to his children saying, don't you remember what I've done for you? I set you free from slavery. I went with you and I provided for you in the wilderness where you could not survive on your own. I gave you everything you needed and more, but then you got comfortable, you got full and you started to believe that you earned it. Um, And so it's just, again, a warning for us to not forget God when we get comfortable, when we get full, when we get satisfied with what's around us. Let's not forget what God has delivered us from and what what He continues to deliver us from. 
So, uh, but then we get sort of a, a plea to return and, and it even says like, take with you words and return to the, the Lord, which uh, some people even use. There's a couple of good books out there around um, taking words to God. Um, so using scripture and prayer, but uh, Hosea even gives um, some, some language of repentance to use here. Like when you come to speak of God, like come, come with words to say, like repent, be restored. And, and God promises compassion, restoration. There's beautiful language around flourishing and trees. Um, and it ends in hope, uh, and and so uh, it's sort of this mm-hmm. this hopeful refrain at the very very end of the book. Yeah, it's it's not too late. We are never too far from being restored to God, which is amazing. So, what are some final thoughts? So, I think the imagery in Hosea is just amazing, and the pictures pointing to Christ to me seemed really clear, especially in those first few chapters. Um, I think my sin and my own waywardness was really emphasized to me as I read. I, in this story, I am Gomer, the prostitute. I am Ephraim, and I am Israel, the one who's moved into Bethel and Gilgal and built my own golden calves. But the Lord continues to call out to me with kindness and steadfast love. He continues to welcome me back to Him when I return. So I, I feel like I have to return to Him every day and every moment because I wander off to these golden calves again. But this book is such a good reminder of the invitation and that I can always return to Him and always find forgiveness and I'm never too far from restoration or healing no matter what. Yeah. And uh, although books certainly fill with judgment, I really like the hope language in the book. And um, as I mentioned last week, the kind of opening couple chapters provide almost like a prequel for the rest of the book. And, and Hosea two sort of ends with language where God is constantly saying like, like the, the sort of hopeful finale uh, of their, their time in the wilderness, their punishment, their, their, um, uh, after the Assyrians, and the Babylonian is God saying, uh, but I will lure her. I will bring her back to the, from the wilderness. I will speak tenderly. I will give her vineyards and the Valley of Acor become a door of hope. And I will remove the names of the bales and I will make them a covenant. And I will abolish the bow and the sword and war. And I will make you lie down and say, I will betroth you. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice. I will betroth you in faithfulness. I will answer. I will answer the heavens. I will sow for myself. I will have mercy. I, uh, I will say to not my people that you are my people. And so there's this constant refrain of I will, I will, I will, I will. And it's so important. Sort of this, like the central redeeming of the book is not about the faithfulness of God's people, but the faithfulness of God. Mm-hmm. And this is so central to the gospel itself that the gracious reconciling work is, is done on our behalf by God. And that comes only through faith. It's God's I will. And, and in our case, particularly as believers, it's God's I did. I accomplished this for you. Yeah. So believe it. And so, um, yeah, that sort of gospel message of hope that Hosea sort of leaves us with of saying, but I, God saying, I will do this. Mm-hmm. Hosea or uh, Israel, you're, you're a stiff necked bunch, but I will redeem you. That's good. So, Micah, let's transition to that book. Um, yeah, yeah, so he's a contemporary of Hosea and Amos, and yeah. so he's kind of talking at the same time, but he's from the southern kingdom. Yeah, I, um, probably our first um, prophet that's probably more, slightly more directed at the southern kingdom. He certainly directs it towards both the north and the south, uh, but he names a number of cities that are in the south um, and and things like that. And and it's, t- it's important to remember, I mean, we mentioned this before with Amos and Hosea, uh, both the kingdoms economically at the time um, are doing pretty well, and therefore their leadership particularly is doing quite well. Um, and of course, taking advantage of others in the process, but they're expanding their borders, um, the wealthy are getting even more wealthy. Uh, they have general security. They don't have a lot of wars during this time. And so um, it, it causes a lot of problems for Israel. 
Um, but we're going to call out, we're going to see a prophet who calls out injustice and that exists in the land and, um, particularly the leadership. We even see them comparing, uh, the leadership to, to Ahab and taking the field of Naboth and, um, some of those things happening in this book, corrupt prophets that take brides, stealing of land deeds, all these sort of unjust practices. Um, and it's a bit of a roller coaster ride. Um, they're sort of like accusations and then hope. And then just so like chapters one and two, there's accusations and warning, but there's hope at the end of that or chapters three through five, there's injustice coming disasters, but then there's a picture of restoration and chapter six, seven, there's injustice, but then there's hope and promise. So you get these lows and then highs or like these judgments and then hope at the end. And so, um, it's good. You don't have to wait for the hope yeah. <laughs> until the end of the book, but, um, it is a bit of a roller coaster ride as you go. Yeah. It's, it's kind of written cyclically, like quite a bit of the scripture we read is, which I just appreciate it. I know it's a little bit harder for us to read in our Western context with our academic of like the way that we do arguments. Um, but it is refreshing to kind of, you know, Amos, we had to wait to the last two verses to kind of find the hope. So here it's nice to, to see it spring up in different areas of, um, the accusations and the judgment. Yeah. And so it, it starts with direct accusations mm-hmm. against sort of their idolatry and their yeah. struggles and, and even um, speaking that some Samaria will fall. And, and it does historically. I mean, we'll get there in our histories, but um, the Northern Kingdom certainly does fall. And, and there's warnings given to the Southern Kingdom as part of this book, too. Um, and I want to be a little careful uh, sometimes because there's a lot of talk about judge and judgment and accusations and all this kind of stuff with this language. But sometimes we in sort of a Western context immediately go to like a courtroom type setting and our version of justice is um, like to, to determine wrong and to punish uh, and um, to, to have this sort of right and wrong understanding of things. And it's not this picture of restoration. We actually, particularly in America, are one of the only criminal justice systems that have has a non-restorative practice in terms of how we think about the criminal justice system. But um, in, in, in a very Israeli sense, it's it's like mishpat, shofat, these words to judge and judgment and justice carry with it this idea of restoration. And so um, th- this idea of taking what is straight or crooked and making it straight. And so it's not just an accusation of wrong or right, um, but, but a... Um, uh, a figuring out how do we move forward from here. And if anything, uh, one, of, one of the words that I think becomes helpful to think about God's um, judgment and justice in the midst of, of, of these kind of moments, it's actually the idea of governing as, as if uh, God's coming in to govern his people correctly. Like they've been misgoverned themselves for whatever reason, and God is coming in to rightly govern his people. And so, um, and that may involve uh, punishment it may involve things like that but um, sometimes um, the, the words related to, to judgment and justice and righteousness are broader than our sometimes very legal understanding though about about them yeah so the sin here in this first chapter that Micah is pointing out is their idol worship now we've talked a little bit about syncretistic worship practices which is basically combining a bunch of different religious practices and doing them all together um, and so we see here Israel hadn't fully stopped worshiping Yahweh but they were worshiping him and other gods they were basically committing spiritual adultery and I think this is our struggle and sin too we end up following God we go to church we pray we give our lives to Christ and we truly mean it but we also give ourselves to other gods the gods of wealth or consumerism or safety or security and so again I know we want to read this just about somebody else but this can oftentimes be about us and our own hearts and our own struggles and sins as the church in modern day yeah 
Yeah, and in chapter one, there's a ton of names of, of uh, you, we definitely get some area, but we also get a ton of city names. It's important to know all the cities are in the Southern Kingdom. So um, as I said, uh, Micah kind of has both in mind here, but um, he seems to have a, more of an awareness of, of struggles in the Southern Kingdom. And so there's a lot of condemnation against the whole house of Jacob. So this is all 12 tribes and they steal fields and homes. They oppress others. They rob unsuspecting people. They drive women out. They victimize children. Um, all this stuff's happening. And in and, and the middle in the middle the the the, it seems like the people stop and say like god don't talk to us like that like quit calling out our sins like we just want a prophet that'll make us feel good about ourselves and even uh, eugene peterson the message says if someone showed up with a good smile and a glib tongue and told lies from morning to to night i'll preach sermons that will tell you how you can get anything you want from god more money the best wines you name it you'd hire that preacher on the spot and so um and i think that's what's going on I, i think um what what's going on in, in Micah's time is sort of this health and wealth gospel in some ways of, of we just need more. We just want to, to have more stuff. We're okay. Uh, if there's injustice to help us feel even more comfortable. And so, um, and, and we want prophets that'll do the same thing for us. And so, um, this is Micah or God through Micah pointing out these injustices. Um, right. And these unjust, these unjust behavior from these, the wealthy is causing more and more oppression to those on the margins. And that is God's heart. That's what we see over and over and over in scripture is how much our affections and allegiance to God is represented in how we care for the poor or the foreigner or the forgotten. And so we're watching them or we're hearing that they're listening to these false prophets who are talking to them of wine and strong drink, things that make them feel good. Um, And they're listening and they're not listening to truth, but they're listening to the person that makes them feel good and tells them what they want to hear. And it makes me again think, are we willing to lean in and are we willing to listen to God's truth in a spoken word? And even if that requires personal change in our own lives, you know, we, um, we love talking about the dignity and value of people, but then do you go home and watch a TV show on Netflix that objectifies a certain person or gender? Do you um, love talk about talking about caring for others, but then you buy things made by slaves in foreign countries? I mean, I just I think this is a it's a hard thing for us to consider in our own lives. Yeah, and and I mean, it's the same thing Timothy or Paul warns Timothy about of of being careful to accumulate teachers that are going to just suit your own passions. And so uh, they they love the prophets that suit their passions at the time. And so um, and and I've even run into this as, as a preacher where uh, I'll speak about certain injustices that are happening in the world around us, and and I'll have people um, kind of say, "Hey, I, I don't want you to talk about that," or or um, that makes me uncomfortable. It's like, yes, like be careful not to, not to flee and suddenly go to a preacher who doesn't say those things. And so, um, if that's happening in your church, like be, be willing to be challenged by your, your preacher, your leader. So, um, so then Micah goes to speak directly to the rulers and the prophets in these areas. Yeah. And so, uh, you have, uh, these leaders who, um, are, are just straight up denounced. Well, before that, we do have this little, two verse sort of hope in, in verses 12 or 13, that there's going to be this remnant. God's going to shepherd his people back. And remember the, the idea of exiles is commonly referred or connected to the idea of wandering in the wilderness. And so, um, this is going to be that experience for God's people again, to, to remember that their God is the one who leads them and gives them just enough and, and, and can provide for them. Yeah. When you hear the word sheep or shepherd, that's a theme in the book of Micah. We've got to 
jump to Jesus and think about Jesus and you know John 10 where he's talking about he's the door and the gate of the sheep yeah all the all the shepherd pieces like we get that picture of some of the Old Testament characters we, we certainly get that picture of God as as the shepherd leader in the desert uh, we get David we get so the, uh, this idea of shepherd is very culminated in Jesus but um, it's such a picture throughout all of God's people's history this idea of shepherding yeah. Um, and the rulers are denounced. They inflict violence on people. The prophets take bribes. Uh, Micah actually stops in the middle of being like, look, I'm not like those prophets. Like I'm filled with power to straight up tell you the truth. Uh, I'm not just saying what you want to hear. Um, but there's, there's those that are taking bribes just to, to say what the people want to hear. And they distort justice. They, they build Jerusalem on bloodshed. The judges, priests, prophets, they're all taking bribes. And, and God's saying, look, because of all this time stuff, this, this mountain is going to be a he- the heap going to be destroyed. Yeah. I mean, he's challenging them saying you guys, the leaders, but you of all people should know and embrace justice because you were the ones who suffered under others injustice, but instead you've neglected them and you've sought your own gain. And it comes back to believers and that we should be more committed to the value and dignity of all humanity than anyone else, because we should understand better than anyone else, what it means to be delivered from oppression through Christ. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, but all is not lost. And we get this text of, in a lot of ways, incredible promise. Uh, sometimes there's there's prophecies that are going to come to fruition when Israel returns, or they came to fruition in Jesus's time, but then there's some that are like still TBD. They're still in the future <laughs> in terms of uh, exactly when they'll come. And so some of these in this section have, have come to pass in some ways. So like uh, the nations are going to be impacted by the teaching of God and God's justice, justice and judgments will be used in decision-making far away. And so um, that has happened. We have nations all over this world now impacted by Yahweh's teaching and, and how God's judges judgments play out. But there's also these pictures of Shalom and the garden that are in there that are also kind of left off and, and we're not quite there yet. Like we haven't seen people totally beat swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks and, um, and, and, and learn war no more. And so, um, that picture, that Shalom picture where people will sit underneath their tree and like this idea of the garden almost, uh, being brought out by Micah. Um, we're not quite there yet. And, and we look forward to it and, and we fight towards those things, but we're not quite there yet. Um, it's, it's important to remember cause God also will say like, but I'm going to preserve this remnant and it's going to include the hurt, the broken, the marginalized, the spies, mm-hmm. the rejected, those who have been cast off, those who are lame. I'm going to restore a people. And, and it's, it's not because I'm going to raise up a military with might and power and, and, and all those kind of things. Like this is my kingdom and it's going to be restored through those kind of people, uh, which reminds me a whole lot of Jesus and how Jesus acts uh, during his time too. Yeah. This hope feels all the more stronger as we read through it because we have spent so much time kind of dwelling and reflecting on the darkness and the brokenness. And so this shalom, this time of peace, this time when we walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever uh, just stirs my affections for God and stirs my longings to be with Him. And then we get uh, a pretty famous Christmas passage uh, out of Micah, uh, one who's going to be born out of Bethlehem. Um, and, and, and it absolutely certainly is about Jesus. But I also want to remember the context here and how maybe Micah's crowd and ultimately uh, the Israelites from this point on are, are, think about this and interpret this because uh, I don't want to miss the context because I think that actually helps shed light on um, the gospel writers connecting this to Jesus as well. And so... Um, if Micah is in talking and, and saying like, look, like there's, there's this King is going to come from Bethlehem, like in their minds, 
that's David, and it's rightfully so. That that has been the king who has come from this little podunk town in the middle of nowhere, this tiny little town of maybe like 10 to 15 families that, that David has come from. And so he comes from this tiny and significant town. And what was the lesson taught of God anointing David as compared to the the choosing of Saul by the people? And Saul was the king who was fit to, for the part. He was tall. He had battle experience. He fit the mold. And David was... From tiny little Bethlehem, he's the youngest brother, kind of runt of the group of, of eight of eight of his family, and least likely to fit the role of king. And so, I think Micah, what he's doing is he's reminding him, look, there's a coming attack, but you need to remember how God's story works. Like Israel, you don't grow powerful through more wealth or or more boundaries and an army and all these kind of stuffs, because that's kind of what they're struggling with right now is becoming this empire, this strong and mighty empire. And God's reminding him, like, look, like out of Bethlehem come your rulers. And so there's going to be, it's going to be like that again. And out of the smallness and, and weakness comes God's strength. Out of being last comes being first. It's the upside down nature mm-hmm. of the kingdom. And so even the language eventually of seven shepherds and eight princes, like David had seven older brothers who were also were shepherds, uh, even though they were fighting at the time or, and a whole family, this royal family becomes eight in a way. And so like there's Davidic imagery going on, but I, I think there's definitely that tie in to, the lesson of the upside downness of, of how God works uh, compared to what what the people at the time in the Southern Kingdom and the Northern Kingdom were really focused on. Yeah, it's really beneficial to kind of to be reading this right now as we're also studying the life of Jesus in the book of Mark because it helps us to understand a little bit more of what the disciples or others were thinking about Jesus being the Messiah if they were imagining the Messiah to be a ruler or a king. But I also just really appreciate reading this in the context that you talked about, Chris, and also the context of the fact that this is pointing towards a future Messiah and that the judge of Israel will come from Bethlehem. He will come from humble beginnings and deliver us in ways that we couldn't have imagined. Yeah. I mean, we certainly saw in Mark this week, this sort of picture of upside downness. Um, and, and we get a reminder that this remnant will be delivered. Now, there's differences of opinion on exactly uh, how future-oriented this is or how much this was fulfilled even immediately. Um, I tend to be in the more immediate camp, but I understand not everybody agrees on that. Um, but um, we will see as we read the history that uh, the northern kingdom certainly falls, uh, but the southern kingdom doesn't, uh, at least not by the Assyrians. Eventually, the Babylonians will come in and take care of them. But uh, immediately, the, the southern kingdom uh, kind of holds up uh, in, in Jerusalem within the walls, and Hezekiah, as a king, helped lead this whole revival of repentance and stuff like that. And so um, the language here, I think actually ties into that where they're surrounded on all sides. They're like this young line surrounded on all sides or um, this, this line where the beasts of the forest are all around them in the midst of the people. And so, um, and, and there's things being torn down, there's things being destroyed, but at the end of the day, they end up becoming victorious. And, and that's what happens in the Southern kingdom. They ultimately defeat the Assyrians, the Assyrians eventually retreat. Um, and, and so uh, I, I think this picture is, is certainly immediate, um, but it also is future. So sometimes we think like the, the prophet said things and Israel just ignore them, but the, the Southern kingdom actually initially listens to the prophets and, and repents. And so mm-hmm. uh, we're going to see that as we read the histories, but um, I think this is pointing in that direction. Yeah. Sounds good. New Testament. Jesus heals a blind man at Bethsaida. Um, 
it's important to remember, I know with week break, sometimes we lose touch with what we just read. Jesus just said to his disciples, just a few verses before this, having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear. And I wonder if this healing placed here mm-hmm. by Mark um, could be sort of this physical picture of the spiritual lesson that he just asked the disciples about and actually will unpack in the next few chapters, this, this sort of constant misunderstanding of what it really means to follow Jesus, who Jesus really is, all those kind of things, because we're going to see a pattern uh, of three, uh, three times, um, this, this three times repeated pattern of Jesus predicting his death, his disciples under misunderstanding the nature of true discipleship. And then Jesus will teach the true discipleship is costly and of all suffering. And so, um, could it be the, the spirit, a physical picture of the spiritual lesson of like, you, you see Jesus, but you don't t- truly understand what Jesus is really all about. Yeah. I, I love how all of what Jesus does, or I would say all of it, but maybe almost all of it has some sort of object lesson or significance or meaning just beyond what we're practically literally reading there. And and this here is definitely pointing out, and we're about to see it pointed out a lot, that the di- disciples don't get it yet. Yeah. And, and Peter becomes the first object lesson there to, about that because, I mean, there's the initial question, which I think is like the most important question the gospel writers sometimes ask uh, in their gospels of, who do you say Jesus is? Like that's 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 the goal is to to challenge it to present uh, who Jesus is. And so they even ask, what does the world think? And so we're like, well, he's like some kind of prophet, maybe like Elijah, maybe like some of the other prophets. Which I mean, you want an example of a blurry tree? That's it. Yes, he's a prophet, but there's so much more than that. And, and then the disciples answer, and and Peter certainly is quick to answer and says, "You're the Messiah, or the Anointed One, or Christ, depending on your translation." And so, in the in the context, it's it's Paul, uh, Peter thinking like, "You are that King that has been promised," and it's important even in, that it's mentioned in the region of Caesarea Philippi. Like this is where. There wasn't a lot of Caesar worship in 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 Israel, but this was one of the towns. That's why it even has a Greek name, and so um, it's named after Caesar. and And it was there was a Caesar temple like right there. And so uh, I love that this is where Peter goes. No, you're the king. <laughs> like Caesar is not the king. You're the king. Um, and so yeah, yeah. And so seeing Peter confess him as Christ or the Messiah, like we just read in Micah and we're reading in the prophets, he may have a totally different understanding of what that means. Uh, Peter doesn't fully get who Jesus is yet, and he doesn't get how Jesus is going to live out his role as Messiah. And I think this should give us hope and comfort, even in, the, in that we're like, we are in process in being sanctified and understanding God. So if you've been a Christian for a while, you may look back and be like, I can't believe I didn't get that, or I misunderstood that, or I didn't even know about that. But this is a process of learning to be with, like Christ and knowing him more and more through our study and our experience with him. Yeah. Yeah, that framework is is um, about the Messiah is is important. Like they they thought one would come to restore Israel as a great nation to rule and reign with justice, one that will kill their enemies, not be killed by Israel's enemies, and one that will reign and not die. And so um, this is this is backwards when Jesus kind of turns the corner here in Mark and makes a statement that's sort of a shock to the system of the fact that he's gonna he's gonna suffer and die. And so no wonder Peter is sort of like. Yeah, I think you got this wrong, Jesus. And so, right. and Jesus's response is essentially like, "You're not thinking like the kingdom of God. You're thinking like everybody else in the world thinks." And and I'll remind you, like what I just said to Micah, like there's an upside down 
witness to God's kingdom. Like remember the way God's story plays out and how God's kingdom plays out. And and essentially Jesus's challenge here of, of you really want to know what my kingdom is about. It's about not seeking a bunch of things for yourself and self-satisfaction, but denying yourself. It's not comfort and riding a good life, but taking up the cross. So this life, it's not about you gaining all that you can, but losing it for the sake of Jesus and his kingdom and for the good of others. Like that's kingdom living. So take up your cross. You're not the king. Jesus is. Let Jesus be your Lord, and may we let uh, him be king and, and also walk in the way of our king. That's the challenge, I think, in the text. Yeah, I just, I mean, this is, I'm going to like kind of put myself in Peter's perspective here, and it may or may not be right, but uh, maybe maybe Peter didn't know that Jesus was perfect or sinless, right? And I could like hear him, you know, if he's following this leader and he thinks this guy is going to take over and rule like David did, and then the, the guy comes in and is like, I think I'm going to be killed, or I am going to be killed. Um, Peter may think Jesus is just having some sort of leadership yeah. crisis, and he needs to be like cheerleaded into being like, no, you can do it. You've got this. Uh, but really, Peter had it all wrong. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at some point, yeah, there's there's reason that the Peter might even think that Jesus might be thinking that way because, like, who are they? Like, they're this powerless band of misfits, like in the north. Like, the Sadducees hold all the power down in Jerusalem. The Pharisees hold a ton of power up in the north. And so, um, yeah, the, the expectation is well, probably someone's going to kill me about this. And so, um, and Peter's like, well, Jesus is just doubting. Right. You like, can do it. I'm going to encourage him. Yeah. Yeah. I'm in your corner. Jesus, Jesus is like, you got no, this. No, Peter, you've got it wrong. Yeah. You're super wrong. And then we transition to the transfiguration story, uh, which we've already covered twice now, but um, this one's the lightest on the details uh, because of Mark, uh, just the way Mark tells the stories. But uh, we have the same characters representative of the Torah and Moses and certainly the prophets, the Nevaim and, and, and uh, Elijah there. <clears throat> and even more fitting that Moses has appointed to Jesus. The prophets have pointed to Jesus and now God himself is the one who speaks and, and, and says, listen to him. And I love that. It's coming right on the heels of probably what Jesus is hardest teaching and most un, uh, for, for the people at the time, probably the, the most um, hard to accept and understand teaching is that God shows up and says, listen mm-hmm. up, like listen to what he is saying. And yet they, they leave and they're kind of struggling with their eschatology. It's like, but wasn't Elijah was supposed to come first. And Jesus is kind of clear. Yeah, he did. Like he doesn't name John the Baptist here, but he kind of clearly implies it. And he's sort of like, guess what they did to him. And if anything, it might be a further teaching. Like you, yes, this John the Baptist was here. He's, he's one of my people. He, he was my precursor and guess what? He suffered and died too. And so all this teaching about suffering and death, it's just going to be part of it. Yeah. And it's a lot for Peter to take in. If you think about that, like him confessing Jesus as Messiah, him getting rebuked by Jesus and then seeing Jesus in his glory. It's yeah. And then we move to a story with a boy with an unclean spirit. And as, as Sarah just said, like sometimes we're in process and we don't see things clearly. And I think I'm still there with this story. And um, I've even said on the previous podcast, like, I think there might be a connection related to Mount Sinai and the golden calf. And and I'm starting to see a few of those more strains. And so it might be a little bit of a reach, but there's definitely some parallels of language. Like Moses burns the golden calf and this boy gets cast into the fire. And Moses grinds the, the calf into powder and the boy grinds his teeth and wastes away. Like Moses scatters and flings the powder on water and the boy casts himself in the water. The demon violently flings the boy. Moses makes the children of Israel drink the powder. This boy has like foaming at the mouth. Like Moses makes, takes hold of the two tablets and dashes them down as the Septuagint reads. And this demon, whenever it seizes him, dashes the boy down, same language. And so there's, there's a lot of parallels in language. And so what could that mean? That becomes a little bit harder. Like, could it be in the story that like the, the father, um, 
is analogous in some ways, maybe to God or Israel's related to the sun. Like there's the sixth son from childhood, like even back at Sinai, like Israel was in their birth days, like their youngest days were still showing struggles and no one can exercise Israel. No one could really drive out the sin, the brokenness and all those kind of things. And, and Jesus is coming and, and saying like, look, that like I, I can do that. And it's interesting, even in that golden calf story, before and after the golden calf story, Moses has sort of this intercession moment to plead for Israel before God. And and here Jesus teaches about his death and resurrection and on and those same spots, if we were to parallel those stories. And so could it be Jesus going like, look, like, my intercession on your behalf is my death and my resurrection. And, and the question is, do you believe it? Like, cause unbelief is definitely the theme throughout this text too. And so the father mm-hmm. struggles to believe the disciples struggle to believe, um, that, that Jesus is the one who can actually finally bring true healing. And so it says if the physical healing of his son lies, the mystery of this man and, and disciples own healing, the spiritual healing restoration that will come through Christ. And so it becomes an interesting parallel. I'm still trying to put it together. Uh, yeah. But, I don't know that I'm really kind of bored with it yet, but it's still better than the notes I had, which were like, I'm confused. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and then we get to like, this kind can only be, uh, what's the phrase? This kind can only be driven out by anything but prayer. And that's an interesting phrase too, because is that is this kind, is that a reference to the kind of demon or is it a reference to, um, the, the unbelief, the inability that, that has marked this whole section, whether it was the dad or the disciples, because if it's second, I can argue that that probably makes more sense. Like Jesus's prescription for unbelief is to press in, to pray, to fast, to, to do these spiritual disciplines, to, to, to move towards God. And so, um, yeah, it's it possible that that's the interpretation. Otherwise, it becomes like an odd um, methodology uh, to, to, to hear a methodology that's not even impl- uh, um, employed in the storyline. And so, right. um, yeah. So don't hang your hat on there's a certain kind of prayer that can drive out certain kind of demons. It's like, I, I don't know if we should make that application from that one line. Yeah. Um, I think this cry of the father saying, I believe, help my unbelief just can speak to our hearts in a lot of ways. And that sometimes we feel responsible for keeping ourselves in faith um, or holding on to God. And the way the father deferred, even in his unbelief to Jesus, I think is an invitation for us when we struggle, when we have doubts, um, when we wake up in the middle of the night, wondering if any of this is really real, crying out, I believe God help my unbelief and trusting the faithfulness of a God who we know who is always faithful to hold you fast to him. And we get Jesus, um, set the refrain again of saying, uh, he's going to die. And three days later, he'll be resurrected. But I mean, these disciples don't even want to ask him about it. Yeah. <laughs> they still don't get it. It's, I, I still, love the disciples yeah. reaction in these moments where it's like, we're, we're afraid of him and we don't even know what to ask him about this. And so, um, and then there's a conversation around who's the greatest. Um, and, and Jesus has shown and there are people, people he's interacted with, like he's interacted with tax collectors and lepers and all these people that are so on the margins and, and, um, he's going to be the King where this is about his kingdom is about, and it's not about the first or the might or the power or the financial successes, the, the many ways that the world would define things. It's about those in the margins and servants and those who seek the good of others and the broken, like that's the first in God's kingdom. Yeah, he's reiterating so much of what we read in the Old Testament and that his heart is for the those on the margins. And then there's sort of a, 
a uniqueness in the story of like this guy who is unnamed. Uh, we don't even know who he is or how he's interacted with Jesus, but he's doing work in Jesus' name. So it's not like he's doing anything heretical or outside of normal doctrine, but um, he's just unnamed and doing stuff in Jesus' name. And, and the disciples are wondering what they should stop him. But um, ultimately, got Jesus like, look, like the, the kingdom's not about just you 12 guys. And, and there's going to be more and my kingdom's going to spread and my kingdom people and my disciples are going to be more than just you 12. And so, um, and, and, and to let the kingdom go forth, don't stop what God is doing, uh, even if it's beyond you 12. Yeah, it made me think of the uh, the parable of the mustard seed and that Jesus is celebrating that this is continuing to grow and maybe what appears on the outside is unpredictable ways, but the yeah. kingdom of God is growing. And coming right off that previous story, um, this little section on little ones, uh, yes, there's probably multiple ways to, to kind of parse this one out too, but um, it might refer to even disciples because the, 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 little ones can refer to disciples um, historically. And so it's Jesus referring to his 12 disciples stopping this guy saying, in, in that context, sandwiching those, those, sandwich, those stories together, like don't be a stumbling block for, for, for him or anybody. Like if, if there's a movement of God, if there's people coming um, to, to, to know Jesus and, and doing the work of Jesus, like don't stop them. You, don't be a stumbling block for them. Don't, don't get in their way um, or you'll be like thrown into the abyss. Like, and, and Jesus has already had harsh words about those who um, have been adversaries, whether it was um, people who uh, try to call his work the work of Satan or even Peter who got in his way and, and Jesus responds to him and says, no, like this is the adversary. This is Satan. And so if there's any hindrance, if there's anything causing um, – uh, the process of God to go forward, like sanctify yourselves. Like mm. it, sanctification is coming no matter what. So you should probably work on purification now, like salt and be at peace with each other. Yeah. And remember that our sins, nothing, we don't sin independently. Our sins always affect someone else. Yeah. Then we make a bit of a subject change uh, to move into a conversation about divorce. I'm not totally sure exactly why Mark puts this right here, but um, there was certainly a debate at the time around uh, what is permissible in divorce. And and the more common interpretation was a a pretty uh, quick and easy divorce uh, culture. Uh, And, and what happens in that culture is that the the women and these, these divorced women um, really get um, thrown into pretty rough situations where, um, they're, they're, they're no longer uh, virgins to be married and they're no longer have uh, the provision of what was a more patriarchal culture at the time. And so, um, it was, it was exposing in, in a way, not providing protection for women. And so Jesus is teaching here is to go, no, 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 Let, let's up the idea of sanctity of marriage. It's, it's hardly an exhaustive teaching on divorce in the new Testament. And you, we have right. to take more verses here, but, um, Jesus is certainly siding with a more restrictive interpretation that ultimately provided protection for women. Yeah. I think we oftentimes endure these sorts of instructions, looking for the line of acceptance and permissibility when Jesus is really clear with his heart here that the union God made in marriage should not be separated. It shouldn't be a question in many cases, it shouldn't be a question of can I, but but it should be should I? And the answer, right. with some exceptions, is generally no, you shouldn't. Yeah. 
uh, and then teaching about children. And, and sometimes we, we think about the sweet, innocent understanding of children. We just need a faith like that. But um, I think it's a probably more culturally a question of value. Uh, children yeah. until they're teenagers have kind of low value into a culture until they can work or inherit or have a job or anything like that. Like there's not a lot they bring to the table. And I think Jesus uses the children as an object lesson of faith. They're coming children come with nothing. They're, they don't come with works and, 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 and uh, have kind of a workspace faith, but, but they come with kind of empty hands. Like, and, and that's how we show up to Jesus. And actually next week we're going to right off the story. We're going to see the story of someone coming, going, look at all my things I'm bringing to you, Jesus. Am I okay? And Jesus is, is upplaying this idea of, no, you, you come to me with nothing. That's, that's how you come to me. Not your list of accomplishments and, and things you've done in my name. Yeah. And then Proverbs 1, the opening of Proverbs. Yeah, it's kind of, I'm glad we finally start Proverbs, even though <laughs> we've been in it for a year. Um, but again, the emphasis, of, especially at the beginning of Proverbs, is wisdom. So we see that wisdom looks like righteousness, justice, equity, which shouldn't be a surprise to us if we've been reading the Bible for the last year. Um, and it means not consenting to sinner's enticement. But but that key word is enticement. Sin is an enticing. But wisdom looks like saying, I am enticed by this, but I'm not going to buy into it because I know it is not God's best for me. Yeah. And, and the connection with the fear of the Lord and all that too, of, of like that, that is a great starting point, uh, to understand who the Lord really is and, and, um, and the power and kind of the, the actual omni everything that the Lord represents. Yeah. So next week, what should we pay attention for? So we're going to finish up Micah and then we're going to start Isaiah. We're only going to read, I think, the first 12 chapters, not next week, but in this next section. But as you read Isaiah, I just want you to pay attention to the names of God, how Isaiah references God, the different ways God is described by Isaiah. Um, And in the New Testament, I would just encourage you to check out the cross-references for Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem. There's so much Old Testament fulfillment in there, and it might be kind of exhilarating if you really like to study the Bible to, to find those connections since we've been reading about them and studying them more recently. Yeah, and as we get to the end of Micah, um, watch how the prophet speaks of what God actually desires for his people. Um, Is it simply forsaking idols and correcting your worship, or is there more to it than that? Um, And as the New Testament, um, we're going to get, I mean, there's a lot to cover in Mark, but um, we're going to get to stories like the fig tree. And remember, the fig tree never explicitly represents Israel. Olive tree does, pomegranate tree does, the grapevine does, but not the fig tree itself. Sometimes figs are representative of the fruit uh, of of faithfulness, but the, but the tree itself had never had historical ties. But at Jesus' time, the fig tree was probably more representative of the leaders, uh, and that has come from Proverbs, but the leaders of God's people. So with that in mind, notice the Mark and Sandwich that gets played out in the story of the fig tree and what Jesus does around those, that time. And so see if you can catch kind of what Jesus might be doing. That's it. Thanks, y'all. Cool. Thanks, everybody.